this is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith and I am with Officer David Eagleton, the Sacramento Police Department. And we're responding, well, he's responding, I'm tagging along to a call of a disturbance at an apartment complex here. And this is the graveyard shift, or what do they call it? Yeah, graveyard shift. (laughs) We pretty much work the wee hours of the night and uh, try and keep the streets safe. This edition of B-Side is about authority, which is why we're hanging out in a police car. So, um, do you feel like you're an authority? Uh, more or less. I mean, we we pretty much have the power to decide if uh, somebody goes to jail or not. And yeah, crime has to be committed, but uh, you know, that's a lot of responsibility when you're taking somebody's freedom away. And people respond to that. <laughs> they respond in good ways and bad ways. All depends on uh, their feelings towards police. Not too long ago, we were here and somebody slashed tires on our patrol car. Nice. <laughs> Can you, can you go uh, deal with this guy, the latest lady over here? Yeah. Look, that guy upstairs, I'm tired of him talking mess to me. Tonight, we were drinking with the neighbor. He comes and he tells me, why don't you shut the F up? No, you shut the F up. You tell me you're going to be my ass? Come over here, be my ass, then bitch. Shut the f*** up, bitch. Tina, do me a favor. Black ass bitch, Okay, I'm sure he's doing it, but I'm sure you're doing a lot of it too. <laughs> no, it's uh, no, don't I, don't officer. pass the don't pass the buck here because you do your own talking too. No, he's the one that always messes every time I try to say I, I was and trying to help. And what did you say him. to him? No, he goes, you shut what, the what, F up. Okay, what did, what did you just say to him when I was well, standing right, right now, here? Right now, yeah. but earlier me and him was going at it because he started it. Doesn't so matter. Right. It takes two. I know. It I know. takes two. I know, but um, so the, me, things you be ta- the things you be saying to me is... Tina, so we don't have any further problems, okay. either you leave or go inside. Man. And do that now. Next time I, see, I come out here, if I see you outside, you're going. How old are you? Okay, while he deals with that, um, our first story comes from Lewis, and we aren't telling you his last name, and you'll understand why in a second. He's a teenager. He lives in New York City, and he recently stopped mugging people. He's struggling with his decision and trying to stay on what he calls the brighter path. Here's his story. It's me and him. And, and then behind them, and then behind them is his, is his boys. And then next to his boys is you. So all of y'all ready to do something because all of y'all had your hands in your pocket. So I know, I know, I know most of y'all must have something on y'all. And you're, you're mentioning like, I'm a, like I was against you. I'm Lewis, 18 years old, raised in the Bronx, and this is me and my boy Silvio having a talk. You see, I spent my four years of high school stealing and selling drugs, mostly mugging other kids and people in nearby neighborhoods. I never got caught. In the beginning of my senior year, I decided to stop, to change my life. 
to leave the old me behind. The point of this conversation with Silvio was to speak about the change I've made, but as I hear it now, I noticed the pride in that voice. Now I wonder if the change of mentality I claim is real. Sure, I haven't robbed anyone in a while, but if my attitude about it is the same, then what's really changed? Can I say I'm any different? Can I be sure I won't start stealing again tomorrow? I don't know. I remember having the same pride when I spoke to my friend Anthony about the first time I robbed someone, about how in eighth grade my friends and I jumped a guy and stole his chain and jacket. I remember talking about the excitement I felt, excitement that I wanted to relive as I told Anthony my story. We ran like for like two, three blocks or something and then turned the corner and ran some more and then ran into a building. And my heart was beating super fast and like my face was red and I was like breathing heavy. But yeah, I had a lot of energy. And then there we all start like laughing for like what we did and then we all like feeling all good and and like me personally like it felt real good like just robbing somebody and like taking their stuff and it kind of put me in a position of power and power feels good to anybody like I felt the rush I felt the adrenaline and like I kind of wanted more like I was like yo there's no problem with this I could do this it feels good when you were, when you guys were actually on the guy, did it feel the same way then? Or did it feel, where there, is there like an element of maybe something's going to go wrong? I don't know about my other friends, but me, I was thinking like, I hope nobody calls the cops on us. I hope nobody like somehow gets like our fingerprints and like, because like, if we get caught by the cops, then my mom finds out. And my mom finds out, you know, that's like the worst thing that can happen to me because, because like, I want my mom to know what I'm doing. You know, she's going to get all mad and disappointed and this and that. And, and, and for me, like, disappointment hurts more than any other type of emotion. So I, I just didn't want her to find out that was my only fear. After a conversation, I flashed back to the moment I robbed my first victim and thought of the reasons I decided to do it. My stepdad left my mom a few months before and she was stuck with all the bills. I was now the man of the house and I felt I had to be strong and bring in some sort of income, at least for myself. I've matured since then and realized that much of my macho views came from my stepfather. He was kind to me when he entered my life. But as the years went by, he began calling me weak and would say I was exaggerating whenever my emotions would get hurt. When he left, I did cry. Not because he was leaving, but because I couldn't hit him. Today I wonder how else he's impacted my life, and if his teachings helped leading me to the bad choices I've made. To answer this, I'm going to need a professional's opinion. I know you're the person to speak to. There's a social worker by the name of Erica at the violence prevention program I go to. I hope her analysis can help. I, I just want you to like tell me from your perspective as a social worker, what are my issues with my past and like I want to know how will it affect me later on and with my involvement with other people so I mean you're free to say whatever you want okay well I think you're taking a big step in dealing with it simply by being involved in this program because it's a violence prevention program and with gender roles we've done so much work on that the man box and from what I understand from your history 
Your stepfather was a very negative influence. You have this man come into your life who sometimes is nurturing and sometimes is like really super harsh on you, like you better be strong and carry this and don't cry because only girls cry. When you're getting all of that, it's not only giving you a negative sense of what it is to be a man, but it's also putting down women. At what point do you start hurting other people? Whether it's mugging and robbing, threatening and scaring, that comes from a place inside of you where you don't feel good about yourself. You don't respect yourself. So you're willing to do the despicable because you have the messages embedded in you that you're a wimp, you're a whiner, you're a girly man, you're not a real man, you're not strong. And that you're too sensitive because didn't you get tagged with that label that you were too sensitive because you were so close to your mother? Yeah, but like, I never did the stealing thing because self-hatred. I, I respect myself to the fullest. Then the tough question is, why did you do it? Because like, my mom's having a problem with the bills. My mom's struggling, and I, I hate seeing it. I hate seeing my mother suffer. I can understand that because I've heard people who are drug dealers use the same rationale. But you have to look at the feeling behind the feeling. Initially, you're robbing people because you need to get stuff and support your family. You don't want to see your mom working so hard. But where does the anger come in? Maybe you blame yourself for why her relationship with Jose didn't work so that you cost your family some stability in that respect. And then your mom had to go back to the two-job thing. That comes from someplace inside of you and it's not the easiest thing to recognize it's deep in there and it takes some work like like what you're telling me now stuff that like i i really don't don't think of and um i just want to you know thank you for listening to me thank you for having this conversation with me i mean thank you i mean anytime you give me hope and i need you to understand that that's coming from the heart all right i mean okay cool I'm not going to cry. All right, thanks. <laughs> so far, I've talked about how I don't trust that I've actually changed my street mentality after giving up my life a crime. But now let me speak about what made me stop. At around November 2005, my life was far from cheerful. I was failing my classes and disappointing everyone around me. I didn't like being home because the apartment was usually quiet because no one wanted to speak to me. When my mother tried to talk, it would always spark an argument and end with my mother locking stuff in her room and me leaving the apartment until later at night. By December 2005, I'd managed to become distant from everyone I loved. One night, I came home late and had an argument with my mother. I can still vividly remember what happened that night. I get home, my mom's like, Louis, what happened to you? Like, she's all worried. I'm like, yo, calm down. Mind your business. And then, like, she starts screaming at me. This is my business. You are my business. And this and that. And I said, yo, shut up and mind your business. I, I really got loud with her. And then I just go to my room. And then I'm there, like, you're sitting there just trying to calm down. Because I usually take a long time to, you know, try to release, like, my anger and this and that. But then I was kind of like, ah, I should go ahead and go say sorry to my mom. So I leave my room, I walk the hall, I go to her bedroom. But her door is like mostly closed, but just a little bit is open. Then I start hearing her on the phone, like she's having a conversation. So I start being nosy and just listening. Like, So she's talking to my grandmother and she's crying. She's talking about me. She's talking about like, 
oh like what did i do wrong how did why did lewis turn out this way like it's all my fault it's all my fault and she's crying on the phone like she could barely talk like she's skipping words she's not finishing words because she's crying when like when i heard that like i felt like like i was trying to hold my tears so like i can describe it as like my heart just getting flooded with, with like all the tears and like i felt like my heart like like it was being squeezed i felt like my mouth was dry i felt my mouth completely dry and i was like like how could i you know be like this how could i make the woman that has you know raised me and all that how can i make her cry like that? i felt like a monster and then I, I just walked away, like, with my head down, I just walked away, and I went to my room, and I started crying even more, and, um, you know, just stayed in my room, and I, I said, you know what, I might as well just go to sleep, but I couldn't get the idea, like, the thought, that I had the whole event out of my head, so I just, I, you know, I stayed up, like, the whole night, and I just decided that I need to change. But change didn't come that easy for me. When I stopped selling drugs, I became a traitor to the people I dealt with. All the respect that neighborhood gave me was gone. I felt hurt because that respect was the only power I had. I wasn't doing good in school. I wasn't a good son. I wasn't making the amount of money I made before. And I didn't have anyone to talk to. I felt worthless. Dealing with depression was a struggle, but focusing my attention on my job and seeking help from social workers in my school helped me conquer it. It was a long process, but ultimately, I learned to express my emotions more freely and managed to strengthen the bonds between me and my family. It's now April 2007. Over a year has passed since I decided to change. Sometimes I find myself reminiscing on the times I was a bad boy or boasting to my friends about the negative life I lived. When I first started this project, I thought of those things as warning signs. But talking to these people and thinking about my life, I've realized that I, I can't make my past disappear. I try to make a distinction between my old self and my present self when in fact we're the same person. The past has made me who I am today. That piece was co-produced by Lewis and Anthony Mascaro at 826 NYC. It's a nonprofit organization in Brooklyn, New York. And that story came to us through transom.org. I'm Tamara Keith, and this is B-Side, and I'm with Officer David Eagleton of the Sacramento Police Department. So have you dealt with kids who've mugged people? Uh, yes, many times. Do many of them turn their lives around, or is it usually the other way? Uh, not very many. Usually it's just a cycle. It's just a continued thing, and they uh, recidivate and continue to do crime, and not necessarily mugging people, but um, they usually don't step away from the criminal activity. When you were a kid, were you very good, or did you ever get in trouble? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, see, when I was a kid, I think I did shoplift one time. I didn't get 
caught, but um, I only did it once. It was one of those things that kind of had a friend who wanted me to do it, and we ended up doing it, but like I said, never got caught. Uh, other than that, I was a good kid. Uh, did the normal kid stuff, you know, doorbell ditching, stuff like that, but nothing, nothing major. Sounds like you're still haunted by your, your shoplifting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of those things. I'm sure a lot of kids do it um, and don't get caught. But it's just one of those things, you know, you, you don't want to teach your kids that and want to make sure you instill a good moral, uh, moral-based system in their heads. So. When we were putting the show together, we thought it would be kind of fun to talk to someone who used to be anti-authority and then became an authority figure, was outside of the system and that now is on the inside. And we thought of John Kerry, uh, the senator from Massachusetts and former presidential candidate. He was in the Vietnam War and then he came back and he says he did a lot of thinking and then eventually got involved with Vietnam veterans against the war. But there was a point where I felt very strongly that I had to speak out and I had to, to share my sense of what was wrong and why we were pursuing the wrong course. So I did speak out and I thought it was very important to do so. I think we saved lives. I think we ultimately were right. We pointed out how, how badly uh, the, the war was in effect being managed as well as how bad the policy was. And I think that uh, you know, we took a lot of flack for it. To this day, sometimes we do. But I, I believe it was the right thing to do, and I think it, uh, and history has borne that out. But at the time, it was, like, not an easy position to have. At the time, it was, it was controversial, mainstream. sure, because it was a very divided country. And it was high, very controversial, and a lot of friends of mine, even, were upset with the position that I took. Some didn't agree with it, uh, but I still believe it was the right you know, sometimes you have to speak out. Patriotism doesn't just mean a blind acceptance of everything that somebody in a high position does in the name of your country. Patriotism means telling the truth and standing up and fighting for things as you see them. And I think everything, you know, that we tried to do was in keeping with that spirit that what we wanted to do was stand up for our country. When you were working with Vietnam veterans against the war, you you spoke before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. How do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? I was invited to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and uh, I did so during a week that we were demonstrating in Washington uh, against the war. And I spoke out, and it was uh, a moment where I was able to d define uh, some of the frustrations and anger that a lot of people felt about the policy. Uh, they told the stories of times that they had personally raped, cut off ears, cut off heads, taped wires from portable telephones to human genitals and turned up the power, cut off limbs, blown up bodies, randomly shot at civilians, raised villages in a fashion reminiscent of Genghis Khan, shot cattle and dogs for fun, poisoned food stocks, and generally ravaged the countryside of South Vietnam, in addition to the normal ravage of war and the normal uh, and very 
particular ravaging which is done by the applied bombing power of this country. I think in retrospect, uh, you know, years later now, as I look back on it, uh, you know, what I said was true. I, I might have said some things in ways that, uh, uh, that you know, were less uh, polarizing to some people, and, 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 you know, that's certainly something that I've acknowledged in the past. Is that your grown-up senator self yep. looking back? <laughs> yep, that's exactly what it is. That's my, you know, 40 years later look back and uh, sort of learning about life and how people react to some of the things that you say in life. And I think that, you know, I spoke a truth uh, that I n would never back away from, and I'm proud that I did stand up and speak it. But there was also an anger and a frustration in it that, uh, you know, could certainly touch people in, in ways that sometimes uh, don't always stand that test of time. So now you, you actually are sitting in those seats, or at least one of them. Yes, I am. I am sitting in those seats. Does it, does it change your perspective to be on the other side? I feel a greater responsibility, and I always felt that. Uh, way back when, when I was knocking on the doors of Congress, I, I always said, if I ever am up here, uh, i got to make sure that I'm listening carefully. And that is a reminder that I have with me all the time today, that, that uh, I admire people. I don't agree with every position, but I admire people who... Uh, have been standing up and, and telling the truth and fighting against the war. Uh, I think they've done a you know, great service to our country, and they've been very patriotic. Well, Senator Kerry, thanks so much for visiting us on the B-side. I'm really glad to be with you. I'm happy to be with you. Thanks for doing this. Wearing a black top and blue jeans, she arrived in a blue Honda hatchback. Alf 25, can you put me around to that? Alf 25, check. Yay. Uh, Tired of dealing with this lady. Always a problem. So this is Tina, who we've met already in this half hour. Yes, actually, we're already over this way. Yes, we uh, was on, we were on a previous call with this female causing a disturbance, yelling at a neighbor across the way on the in the apartment complex. Told her to leave the complex. She's uh, intoxicated a little bit. So this time we'll probably end up taking her to jail. Being intoxicated in public. Being drunk in public. Yeah. I'm fine. So we I'm told fine. you I know. It's not, to stay inside. So he threatened to, he threatened or to, to leave. Me. He threatened to beat me up. Or to leave, right? That's my family. No. What it, is that what we told you? Yeah. Stay inside or to leave, phone. right? Yeah. I don't know what you're uh, saying to me. Who really is going out? Is that guy up here? This happen often? Yeah. All the time. <laughs> This is what gets frustrating. Right here, repeat calls. Try to be respectful to people and tell them, hey, cool things down and 
never listen. A lot of it is, has to do with alcohol or drugs, but still, it gets frustrating. <laughs> very, very frustrating. Well, on that happy note, that's all for this edition of B-Side. Thank you, Officer Eagleton, for hanging out with us. Thank you. It's been fun. It's been an adventure, that's for sure. <laughs> Always is every night. It was produced by Renee Gattel and Ethan Lindsay, and Ethan helped set up the interview with John Kerry. Huge thanks to Peter Christensen for recording that interview in Washington, D.C. And if you want to learn more about the show or see pictures or video or anything, go to bsideradio.org. That's the letter B-S-I-D-E radio.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>